As members of the Global Farmer Network, we believe agriculture is part of the solution, not part of the problem. We are committed to developing agricultural leaders and sharing their stories across the globe. We have one purpose, to amplify the farmer's voice. My voice. Mi voz. La mia voce. My voice. Welcome to Global Farmer Voices, a podcast by the Global Farmer Network, where we invite farmers from around the world to share their stories and perspectives. What is the Global Farmer Network? I'm so glad you asked, because we're going to dig into that more today. Global Farmer Network was created at the end of 1999 and has taken on many changes since then, but today the organization focuses on connecting and amplifying farmers' voices worldwide. I'm Delaney Howell, host for this podcast series, and on today's inaugural episode, we're going to focus on the inception of the organization, from its roots as a group with a very different name, to its present-day impact on the global farming community. In 1999, end of November, early December, the World Trade Organization was meeting, scheduled to meet in Seattle, Washington, in the United States. But it was an extremely important meeting. That's Mary Boot, the CEO and one of the original founders of the Global Farmer Network, sharing what the geopolitical climate was like at the time when Global Farmer Network was formed. The world was coming to talk about a rules-based trading system, something that the United States has been in favor of for many, many years, and living in and working in landlocked Iowa, which is very productive agriculturally. The importance of trade and market access was very clear. It was during that meeting, which now has become known as the Battle of Seattle, were extensive riots, but it was clear very early on that these riots weren't just happenstance. Um, they were well-planned. They appeared to be well-financed. Uh, the topics that people were rioting, and I mean, and I use the term riot uh, very purposefully, there was tear gas and police barricades and broken barricades and breaking windows of major corporations and businesses all through Seattle. Uh, but, the, but the reasoning behind the rioting was not always clear, clearly against trade, but also against the use of different chemicals, of crop production, against capitalism. The, the issues were broad, but the reality was they were using the stage of Seattle in this particular meeting to cause people to look and rethink some of the issues. In fact, uh, President Bill Clinton at the time remarked that maybe we need to look at the trade agenda for the United States of America. And for Iowa farmers, for people in um, agriculture in generally, there was that was great concern, not just about what happened, but how it was being reported across the United States and internationally. And so in a state where for at that time, every five rows of corn, two or three of them were going to someplace, not just outside of Iowa, but outside of the United States, this is a major issue. And so there was this concern that we could see major policy changes in the trade agenda for the United States happen because of this. But we were concerned. I was talking with other farmers and people that I've met over the years had longstanding relationships within the agriculture space and said, what do you think? 
And one of those gentlemen who ended up becoming one of the original five farmers who joined me in starting what is now the Global Farmer Network said, we need a place where we can take off every other hat that we wear as a commodity producer, as a general farm organization member, as someone who's involved in all these spaces and as a farmer and say, as a farmer, this is why trade is important to me, to my farm, to our region. And so the name Truth About Trade popped up and those five farmers and myself just literally threw some money in a hat. There was no focus group, no long-term plans, but an immediate need sensed that we needed to be clear in why trade market access mattered, not just to Iowa, but to our country and find a space and a lane to tell that story. And that's the beginning. Prior to this era, agriculture, particularly in the United States, had just come out of a very challenging time. There had been some significant weather challenges, a major agricultural recession, and the EU had just introduced a quota system to help prevent farmers from flooding the market with products such as milk. There were also growing pressures worldwide. At that time, Mary had just been wrapping up a role with former governor to Iowa and ambassador to China, Terry Branstead. We were on the rebound. We were coming back out of all of these. Agriculture was actually in a very good space. And as a mentor, one of the things that he focused on, I think we were really thinking about that as a nation, as well as when the found, when things are going well, look at your foundation. And agriculture was in a good space, but there was increased interest in value-added agriculture, not just selling, growing and selling commodities, but adding value to them at all. The world itself was, uh, the ec economically, uh, was growing. Uh, there was more need. The population was growing. There was more need for food. There was a beginning increased interest in what's now confirmed, identified as sustainability. But uh, when things are good, people tend to have more opportunity to think about what else can I be thinking about? And environmental sustainability was starting to pop up. There was also um, in 1998 was the first time that the EU had banned, EU had banned a specific technology, in this case, GM technology. One GM crop had been approved. It was a corn by Monsanto. Nothing else was being approved and they had put a ban on it. And so for the first time, one of the first times, technology was being used as a non-tariff barrier to trade or that free flow of products and crops going across borders. And so there's a lot of things on people's minds and it's, it's like all these things that were underneath the current were kind of coalescing in Seattle. And people were noticing that from around the world, actually, it, it really became this phenomena. And sitting again in the central United States in a, in a culture that's really focused on agriculture production and doing it well, there was major concern, not only about the trade space, but about the technology space, a lot of things just coalescing together. And so this, this vacuum of information, while so many trade groups, and especially in the US, where we have a strong history of 
farmer engagement and talking about policy, trade, and access to technology and stuff over the years. That is not true in many other places. And so the immediate reaction was, we need to raise our voices even more. We're already doing it in these organizations. Perhaps we need yet one more space as a voice, this time without the connection of a specific policy book or a specific organization and saying the same things, but just at this point in time saying, as a farmer, these things are happening. This type of market access is important. This access to technology is important. And it all was bubbling up out of the streets of Seattle. Did you catch what Mary just shared there? An immediate reaction by Mary and a group of five other Iowa farmers was, we need to raise our voices even more. So Reg Claus, Craig Lang, Bill Northey, Bill Horn, Tim Burak, and Mary Boot set out to create what was then known as the truth about trade. What coalesced is probably me coming out of my time with in Governor Branstad's office in, in that policy space because I had been working with each one of these five gentlemen. So when we started having these offline conversations, if you will, about are you watching what's happening? What do you think? Um, it, was, it was just virtually reaching out to people you already knew. Uh, those five were Reg Claus, who was then very involved in the Cattlemen's Association, Craig Lang, who was at that time vice president of the Iowa Farm Bureau, Bill Northey, who was um, had just come off president of the National Corn Growers Association, Bill Horn, very involved in Farm Bureau and corn growers, uh, Tim Burek, also another Iowa farmer, uh, very involved with pork producers, Farm Bureau, corn growers, and U.S. grain. And so it was, there was not a, a significant planned let's go. It's like reaching out to your friends and saying, are you seeing what I'm seeing? What do you think? Should we, should we band together? And again, no master plan, no focus group, no long-term vision, but a real sense, a shared sense of an immediate need and an immediate opportunity. I don't want to put so much on, on the need because that was clearly there, but there was also this sense, and I think a lot of that comes back from the history that we all had working within organizations that supported amplifying a farmer's voice, speaking up, being part of a team, um, and talking about your personal expertise coming from your own individual farming operation and all the other things that you were doing and why this decision or these policies being decided, or in this case in Seattle, re-looking at U.S. trade agenda, how that was going to impact you as an individual farmer. So we pulled on our own backgrounds, coalesced together, and started what was then called Truth About Trade. After the break, we're joined by one of those six founding members and current chairman of the Global Farmer Network, Reg Claus. Reginald Claus, or as his friends like to call him, Reg, was an Iowa farmer at the time the organization was started and had just recently started becoming involved in leadership roles within the industry. Originally got involved in leadership in agriculture in Iowa to begin with, and that was, uh, you know, someone notices and, uh, and says, you, 
we need you in a in this leadership role. Would you please run to be on this board or something? And and in my family, I I was always spurred by the the community engagement that my father and my grandfather were, and uh, so as part of being an example. But you know, it was because of those things that I was I was noticed as a part of. Iowa agriculture leadership, and uh, Mary Boat and and Dean Kleckner at the time, who was American Farm Bureau president, he uh, he'd been involved in the WTO talks, Uruguay Round, and all of those things, and uh, there was a big um, protest that happened in Seattle that that got pretty ugly actually, and it was protesting the whole WTO concept and, and global trade and uh, very ideologically driven and and so the approach was that we need uh, we need advocacy and in, in regard to these things so that people can better understand what's happening and that it's not it's not about us proselytizing as much as just balancing the conversation and so that was sort of the beginnings and then uh, Concurrent with that was the uh, GMO conversation, which was, uh, you know, very divisive and uh, a lot of unknowns in that area. So we became a, an advocacy group purely around those two focuses: the uh, tech and technology access and trade. In 2006, the truth about trade and technology was beginning to expand globally and soon became connected to the World Food Prize, an important annual event held in Iowa around World Food Day organized by Dr. Norman Borlaug. Although this event focused at the time on global food production and security, it was unfortunately rare that farmers were involved in the discussion. Mary and Dean brought their concern to the attention of the CEO and then president of the World Food Prize Foundation, Ambassador Ken Quinn. And while he acknowledged it was a problem, it would require some additional help outside of the World Food Prize. And so Mary and Dean took it upon themselves to start recruiting farmers. They worked with agricultural partners to invite 27 farmers from 18 different countries to Des Moines, Iowa, with the goal of promoting the farmer's voice and injecting their experience into the World Food Prize dialogue. The response from those farmers involved was unanimous. It was an important step in the right direction, and they requested that Mary and the group keep them connected and do this again. Those responses resonated strongly with the board, and so it quickly became an annual occurrence bringing global farmers together as part of the World Food Prize in Des Moines. They quickly recognized that there was a lot to learn from one another, and the organization began to take on a clearer identity. In 2015, during our board meeting, the decision was made to change the name formally to actually become who we were by name as well. And so Global Farmer Network was the chosen title. Uh, each word very specific, global, because at that point in time and continuing today, this network is truly global. As of today, 249 farmers 
from 64 different countries, as opposed to first Iowa, then US, then those adding those first 27 farmers in 2006. To this day, everyone who is a member of the Global Farmer Network is a farmer. They are actively engaged in agricultural production in their respective country and network. We took the advice of that first group very seriously, keep us connected. And the network does that. These farmers are connected, not just by name and by occupation, but also in as many ways as we can to share information. The importance of knowledge transfer, farmer to farmer, farmer to policymaker, farmers to business partners, to NGOs, to the academia, to the research has never been more important, but it was just as important then. And so that ability to connect these farmers to each other and to others became uh, such an important part of who this group was. And we felt like the Global Farmer Network not only explained it, but it was something that people could remember and see the name and know exactly what who we were and had a good sense of what we were doing. And so in addition to the name, we actually had it trademark registered. So it is a registered uh, trademark within the United States and is becoming very well recognized around the world. Well, so much has changed since those original days over 20 years ago. The organization has continued to advance their presence worldwide and the farmer members they work with. Today, there are 249 farmer members from 64 countries and six continents, which makes for a pretty diverse range of ages, backgrounds, and farming systems. We validate each other as we go, and uh, you know, and we keep our keep each other somewhat centered on things so that we don't just get. It's important that we attend to our self-interests, but we also understand that as as societies across the globe are evolving. Um, the needs of that society are being adjusted constantly. The, the desires, the wants, the expectations, you know, relative to environment or, or what's considered to be safe food or the proper way to raise livestock, all of these questions, the answers to those are out there somewhere and we have to be part of that big conversation and respectful of points of view. And so uh, in creating this kind of a network where we are learning how to individually adjust to points of view, how do we address these big topics and uh, what are we as individuals doing to understand it or maybe uh, physically affected in our operations and we share these kind of things and then you go, hmm, okay. And it, what it does, it stops out your personal argument with, with a change. Sharing those opinions and ideas is part of what makes the Global Farmer Network so unique compared to other organizations. Not only does the Global Farmer Network include a farmer advocacy component, equipping farmers with the best tools to tell their story, but it helps create meaningful connections with fellow members whose farms look so different side by side. I think some of the key highlights are obviously the World Food Prize um, and the expansion of beyond the United States because agriculture on a global scale is unbelievably interconnected. 
And having the opportunity to, to put farmers together in the same room, to learn, to share, to hear stories has just been stunning. But I will think, I will say that one of my um, favorite recollections is actually having Dr. Borlaug stop in and visit these farmers each year, beginning in 2006 until the year that he passed away. He never missed an opportunity to meet with the farmers who were in this building because he understood in such a real space and in a very down to earth way that uh, in fact, his, his last words are so famous, take it to the farmer. We can talk about trade. We can talk about technology access. We can hear the best and most important research that's being done in everyone's face. But it is if these things are not gotten into the hands of the people who are actually producing the food that we all depend on, it really doesn't matter. He understood that. He preached that. But more importantly, he exampled that. And so I have great memories of just standing along the wall and watching this interaction of this Nobel Peace Prize winner, asking questions, not just because that's the thing to do or expecting to have all the questions asked of me. It was clearly a back and forth conversation and it happened every year. And it was just stunning to watch. And I think it was also that interaction was, if I was honest, was very fundamental to how the Global Farmer Network response and, and what we do with the farmers ourselves, we provide platforms for them to ask questions, to share knowledge, to transfer knowledge from one to each other. I think another uh, highlight, once again, that happened at the World Food Prize was two farmers, Edgar Ramirez from Argentina, just by happenstance, placed next to a place card for Patience Kaku, a farmer from Nigeria. And we're in a moderated roundtable discussion. And Pedro, who's a member of APRACI, which is the Argentinian No-Till Farmers Association, is talking about a strategy that they're using to deal with drought and, um, and basically uh, not only water quality, but water sustainability, but also protecting the soil and, and building soil health. And he's using this word no-till. And patience is a is a woman on who's so focused on learning. And she, I just remember her physically turning her body and saying, what is this no-till you're talking about? And he goes on to explain the strategies behind no-till, not just the equipment used and the basics, but literally the whole strategy, this process of, of building soil health and how they did it. And she looked at him and said, why do we not have this in, in Nigeria? This would be so helpful. And that simple conversation has evolved into what is now an MOU between the government of Nigeria and APRACID in Argentina, with a program totally focused on transferring the knowledge of no-till strategies to smallholder farmers in Nigeria. It's moments like this where you just sit back and just realize that you are just part of something so much bigger than yourself. And the understanding that we have a lot to learn from each other. And it is not just developed world sharing things with developing world. In fact, many times I would say it's the opposite. It's because we who have so much, 
whether it's land, um, the climate that we're able to farm in, the technology and the research that we have access to. Sometimes it's those simple, simple truths about how they can be used and downscale down and downscale to be applicable to so many others. It's very humbling, but it is just a stunning example of people listening to each other coming in without personal agendas, but other only with a a philosophy of listening and learning and sharing and seeing what can be accomplished when that's when that's the platform that we're all on. It's amazing. As the Global Farmer Network continues to recruit new members and hold regular farmer roundtable trainings, the future of the Global Farmer Network is bright. What does it look like? Well, no one knows for sure. But with leaders like Reg Claus and Mary Boot at the helm, a strategic plan for the organization is within sight. We've been working on a roadmap, a strategic roadmap, that includes that question, of course, and uh, these are complicated things to put together and uh, because of what we're trying to provide. So that challenge, the challenge there becomes somewhat in the sphere of how are we meeting needs for those that collaborate with us? Because we take a collaborative approach with the partners we have on the financial side, and we fill certain gaps because of the nature of our network and what we can do. Um, I think uh, I'm hopeful that we'll see more and more of our farmers on, on substantial panels and in the big conversations around the world because it's, I think that's a part of building brand around farmers generally where the respect comes up that you know, these are these are people that know they do the science they they live the life their children are involved and the future is involved etc that you know you get a, a different level of respect from the the more elite folks that seem to manage a lot of these conversations but i know that we are more and more interested in not being reactive, but being a driving force in the conversations, the great conversations, the narratives that, uh, that shape the next generations in particular. That's a serious interest of mine. We, we, do, we don't need to spend lots of time talking to ourselves because we're, we know, you know, we understand. It's, it is validating and it is important, but uh, the conversation needs to be targeted out there where where we can do some good, and that is in minds that are not yet closed. It's, it's the younger generations. With the world's population continuing to grow and demanding more out of the way we grow and raise the food, fiber, and fuel we consume, sharing the stories behind the people in the industry is at the heart of Global Farmer Network. I am so excited about the future of the Global Farmer Network. Not because we ever had a vision of what it could be, but how the farmers who are the Global Farmer Network have made it clear and have taken the lead. And I think it's fair to say that it was farmers who took the lead from the very beginning. It was those five Iowa farmers who took me along for this amazing ride and said, we have got to lift up our voices about trade. We know what's important. People do, but they don't understand how it impacts every day. To a point, that's not changed at all, Delaney. Uh, people don't understand how 
and why and the what's of agriculture, how they are impacting their daily lives. It's easy to be separated from those realities when we're busy raising families and, and taking care of our own lives, many of them not closely associated with agriculture. And so the need to share share those stories, to talk about that, to be available to answer questions has never been probably more clear. But just like that very first day with those five Iowa farmers, it is now 249 farmers who are also actively inviting and nominating farmers that they know, not just in their community, but around the world. They're meeting different farmers at different meetings, at different events that they go to via social media and saying, this is a voice who we need to hear. So this is a voice I want to, to invite to not to be nominated for the Global Farmer Network. So it continues to be led by farmers. The issues that we talk about in the trade and technology space, um, how we how farmers have always been, but continue to adapt to a, a changing climate. The market access issues that, that they're dealing with today are not unfortunately a whole lot different than they were over two decades ago. And so that voice continues to be needed and it's these farmers who are filling that role. And just like the, the beginning five, these farmers see value in their perspective they see value in the perspective of others. They are very interested in having a constructive dialogue, but we all know that you can't only work in a defensive position, always defending or answering when someone says you shouldn't be, or why are you? And so they've taken the offense, they're leading by example, they're leading with their stories, and they want to lead in partnership and collaboration with the rest of us because we share this world. We shared it 20 years ago. We share it right now. And this is the future of our children and grandchildren we're talking about. And it's going to be a very good one. And I think the, the organization of the Global Farmer Network itself is going to continue to be a convener. We're going to be bringing farmers together. We're going to be providing platforms for them to tell these stories, to engage, but always open to bringing more on so that we broaden the base and build out that, that dialogue that we've all been looking for that's constructive in a process that will ultimately feed the world. Even before podcasts were a well-known medium like they are today, the Global Farmer Network had a podcast, but why bring it back? We're bringing it back because people's voices still matter. And I think as technology changes and as we continue to, to use and then think about new ways to use the technologies already available, it seems like the perfect time to bring the podcast back. Uh, the early days of our podcast use, and they were the very early days of podcast period, were the farmers who authored the columns, reading the columns. I think right now we've learned how to, to make the podcast not that they weren't interesting, but more interesting, right? The interview process, the telling of stories. Uh, as, as we learn more about who we are and we think about what we do and we learn more about what people want to know about agriculture and food and farming, we have a better opportunity to tell those stories. And uh, it's like for those people who read who prefer an audio book. Some of us prefer to read. I'm actually one of those old fashioned, put a book in my hands and I'm a happy girl. But there are a lot of people, my children included, who enjoy audibles. 
They pop it in, they're driving, they're going about their lives and they're still hearing it. And I think the unique piece there is in that person's voice with their um, thoughts and processes added in. And so I'm excited to bring the podcast series back and bring the farmer into your home and into your car and to tell their stories to you. What a fantastic origin story. And with such a large number of new and returning Global Farmer Network members, we'll certainly have no shortage of captivating and inspiring stories to share on upcoming episodes of the Global Farmer Voices podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Global Farmer Network's mission and its members, seeing some of the things the organization is doing, and finding out how you can get involved, please visit globalfarmernetwork.org. And if you'd like to support the Global Farmer Network through a donation, you can do so at globalfarmernetwork.com forward slash donate. If you enjoyed the podcast today, be sure to subscribe and follow the Global Farmer Network on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and YouTube. Until next time, I'm Delaney Howell, and this has been the Global Farmer Voices Podcast.